Good morning. Please stand for the reading of the word. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 25. If you want to uh, follow along with me, that's Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 25. Um, then let's hear the word of the Lord. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children... Then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I considered that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope, it was subjected in hope that the creation itself will not, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and be brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption, as, for our adoption to sonship, the, re- the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Um, I have always maintained that I have preached more sermons on the Sunday after Thanksgiving, Memorial Day weekend. Labor Day weekend, the Sunday after Christmas, that's when uh, the pastors are gone and they turn it over to us lay people. However, I have never preached on the Sunday that is both a men's retreat and an OC marathon. (laughs) So this is a first. And as, as I look around here, I think, well, there's not that many people here. But I do remember the first time I ever preached in this church in about 1996. There may have been 75 people in one service. So we have grown tremendously um, since then. Um, Some of you may or may not know, but I send out an email called Encouragement for Men to all the men of the church here, at least all the men who are signed up for the men's ministry, and then I also send it out to another couple of 300 guys that are part of my, my um, own ministry. And the series I'm working on at the moment, I thought you wives may be interested in, it's called 
the 12 marks of a man of God. So I'm going to read you the 12 marks of a man of God that we're working through. A man of God spends time regularly in God's word and prayer. A man of God understands and embraces the core teachings of the Bible. A man of God walks by the Spirit. A man of God lives a morally and sexually pure life. A man of God consistently exhibits integrity, especially financial integrity. A man of God humbly serves others in love. A man of God speaks edifying and encouraging words. A man of God works hard, adding value to God's creation. A man of God is a true gentleman in the biblical sense. A man of God leads his wife and family. A man of God is active, actively serves in his church. And number 12, a man of God faithfully perseveres and finishes strong. What do you think of that? Pray for us men to be... Men of God. We're halfway through that series at the, um, at the moment. And I, since, since I'm a business lawyer and a business person, I've done it with a particular application to our business lives. Because that's pretty, um, pretty important. Okay, let's pray and then we'll do the sermon. Father, open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts that we might hear from your word. We might respond and be encouraged, worship you, and live for you. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. You know, um, a number of years ago when my oldest son had graduated from high school before he went to college, he and I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa. And standing at the top of that mountain, covered in snow at 19,700 feet, looking down on the clouds with your son standing there with the guide doesn't get any better than that. My middle son is a skier, a really good snowboarder. He went to the University of Colorado, but I think he majored in skiing for most of the time. And it, uh, skiing down uh, Vail, Copper Mountain, with your son those beautiful mountains there that you can see, doesn't get any better than that. Our younger son, Steve, I took to South Africa to my hometown of Durban, and we took him out once to see the Valley of a Thousand Hills, which is just north of Durban uh, in South Africa where I grew up, and I showed him this beautiful Valley of a, uh, uh, of a Thousand Hills, and just showing it to him and telling him the history of that doesn't get any better than that. For my 70th birthday, Tina and I went to the big island, to the Mauna Kea, sitting there in that hotel, looking over that beach, watching the sun go down over the ocean, drinking a glass of wine. It doesn't get any better than that. (laughs) But I've got news for you today. It does get better than that. The best is yet to come. Our passage this morning is a a snapshot of glory. There's many snapshots in the Bible of glory, but this is one snapshot of heaven and of glory. In our passage today, we're going to read that glory 
is a complete reversal of Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. We're going to learn that we will share in glory with God and Christ, that it's certain, and that we are the focus of this reversal. It involves all of creation, both humans and subhumans. Heaven will be on this new, restored, and liberated earth. We will have eternal, perfect resurrection bodies just like Christ. That's what we're going to learn today. But I thought I'd give you a quote from J.C. Ryle before we begin. J.C. Ryle was a, a theologian in England in the 1800s. And he, he wrote this, which I thought was very interesting. The man who is about to sail for Australia or New Zealand or South Africa as a settler is naturally anxious to know something about his future home, its climate, its employments, its inhabitants, its ways, its customs. All these are subjects of deep interest to him. You're leaving the land of your nativity. You're going to spend the rest of your life in a new hemisphere. It would be strange indeed if you did not desire information about your new abode. Now surely, if we hope to dwell forever in that better country, that heavenly country, glory, we ought to seek all the knowledge we can about it. Before we go to our eternal home, we should try to become acquainted with it. And I I think sometimes... You know, over the years in Christianity, things uh, seem to go back and forth a little bit. But, uh, you know, there, there was a time where we maybe were so heavenly minded, we were no earthly good. I think the pendulum has swung now where we are so earthly good, we, we don't worry about heaven. Uh, we want to change the environment when we know God is going to do it all by himself when Christ comes back again. But before we get into our text here, I've got to give you a little bit of theology here. So put on your theological cap. And you remember in the book, in the, in the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, in the first five days, God created subhuman creation. The, 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 um, the earth, the stars, the moon, the vegetation, animals were created. And when, they were, when he had finished creating them, he said... It is good. Then on the sixth day, he created man and woman and created us in his image. And after he had finished creating us, he said, it is very good. But then in Genesis chapter 3, we have that sad occurrence where Adam and Eve partake of the fruit and Adam commits what we know sometimes in theology as the original sin. Now, many consequences flowed from Adam's sin, but three of them are important for us this morning. The first one is at the moment Adam partook of that fruit, he he and Eve died spiritually, which means they were separated from God from that moment on. They broke their relationship with God and they died spiritually. Secondly, as a result of Adam's original sin, All of us human beings are born with this propensity to sin. We've got something in us that just wants to rebel against God. 
The Apostle Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 7. The good that I want to do, I just don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I just do. So we human beings are this weird, um, schizophrenic group of people. On the one hand, because we're created in the image of God, both Christians and non-Christians can be very compassionate. We can be generous. We can be kind. We can be courageous. We can be great parents. We can do wonderful things. But those same people can get divorced. They can abuse their children. They can be malicious. They can commit sexual sins that destroy their family. They can be greedy. They can be selfish. They can be deceptive. Sorry, let me change that again. We can be <laughs> all those things. Because as, be- as wonderful as we are created in the image of God, we have this dark side to us. You see it in your children all the time. These beautiful, beautiful, wonderful children. But they've got this selfish side to them. The third thing that happened after Adam's sin is that God pronounced a curse upon the creation. He said the ground is going to be cursed. And so creation is the same way. We've got this beautiful creation. There's nothing like the sun going down over Catalina Island in the Pacific Ocean. There's nothing like those wonderful mountains in, in uh, Colorado or the, the Indian Ocean, the Valley of a Thousand Hills. But we also have tornadoes. We have hurricanes. We have drought. We have famine. We have that wonderful Colorado mountains have avalanches that kill people. And in the animal world, you've got all these predators running around. The deer are not real safe. They've got lions and tigers and cheetahs. And the poor squirrels have a hawk that comes down and plucks them out. Even the poor fish have a pelican that drags them around. You know, we live in this, this world that's so beautiful from one point of view. And yet the antinomy, it's also a cruel place, a difficult place. Well, the passage we're going to read this morning uh, talks about how God is going to reverse the consequences of Adam's sin when Jesus Christ comes at the, the second coming. Now, the book of Romans is a great book of the Bible. The first four chapters of the book of Romans talk about justification by faith. Basically saying, although we are spiritually dead and separated from God, if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we will be justified, forgiven, saved, and have a relationship with God. And that solves the first problem of Adam's sin. But Paul was speaking to a congregation that he spoke to all over the um, the area of the Mediterranean there, as, as well as the readers of Romans. And they had this question. Paul, can the simple, seemingly fragile faith that justifies us and reconciles us to God, is that enough to get us to glory? Is that enough to get us to heaven? Or do we need to do something more to earn our way to be sure that we go to heaven? And, and Romans chapter 5 through 8, the basic theme is assurance, where Paul is saying, no, that simple faith in Christ is sufficient to get you to glory. He starts out Romans chapter 5 with that grace verse saying, since we've been justified by faith, 
We have peace with God. And then he says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, the word hope is very, has a different meaning now from when the King James Bible was translated. The word hope in the Greek, the original Greek text that the Bible was written in, is the word elpis, from which we get the name Elvis. Elvis is the great hope. Was the great hope. No, uh, I'm not sure he ever knew his name meant hope. But he's great. This word hope actually means um, confident expectation. That's really what it meant. Confident expectation. Now, of course, the meaning of hope has changed. We say, you know, I hope the Dodgers start winning here in baseball. I hope the University of Texas has a better football team this year. And, and so on. It's almost like hopeful thinking, wishful thinking. But when the Bible talks about hope, it's talking about a confident expectation. That's how it should be translated. But we have so many hymns that talk about faith, hope, and love. It doesn't make sense to say faith, uh, confident expectation, and love. That just doesn't seem to go well together. And all our great hymns that we have of hope just wouldn't work with confident expectation. But Romans 5 says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Then the end of Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul tells us that Adam's one sin was totally reversed by Christ's death on the cross. Christ's death on the cross reversed the consequences of Adam's sin. And now when we move to Romans chapter 8 verse 14 that I want you to look at right now, if you could look at your Bibles or whatever kind of a screen you have there. When we get to Romans chapter 8 verse 14, The Apostle Paul is going to paint a snapshot, a picture of what glory is going to look like. This glory that we rejoice in, this reversal of Adam's sin. What does it look like? It's just one one snapshot. There's many snapshots. So I'm going to summarize verses 14 through 17 for you. Um, Basically, Paul is making four points here. He's saying, all Christians have received the Holy Spirit. That's part of being a Christian. Secondly, and all of us who have received the Holy Spirit are adopted into God's family. We're God's children. And then his third point is, as God's children, we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Now that's pretty significant. I mean, just think if you were heir of Bill Gates. That'd be pretty significant. Or a co-heir with Bill Gates' children. That'd be pretty cool. But we're much better than that. We are an heir to everything God owns and has. And we're going to be a joint heir with Jesus Christ. And so, his fourth point that he makes in verse 17 is, And so, we will share with Christ in God's glory. Look at verse 17. Now then, since we are children... Then we're heirs, heirs with God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his suffering, in order that we also may share in his glory. And that's pretty amazing. That sinful people like you and I, through simple faith in Jesus Christ, will one day experience glory, God's glory, which is his splendor, 
his majesty, his purity, his power. We'll, we will share in that in the future. Look at verse 18. Verse 18 is a sort of a summary statement. I consider that these present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, the, the present sufferings Paul is talking about may be persecution for the faith, but it's probably just talking about the regular sufferings of life. Even in this congregation here, some of you are suffering physically. You've got some real significant physical ailments that make it difficult to operate, and you're suffering. Some here may be suffering financial reversals. We're not quite sure how to pay your mortgage or your rent payment or your car payment or send your kids to college or your job may be on the line. There's a lot of suffering that goes that way. Then there's sufferings in relationships, divorce, broken relationships with parents, broken relationships with children, lousy supervisors and employers, tacky neighbors. There's all kinds of suffering that we have that, that go on. You take your car to be fixed and they make it worse. There's all kinds of issues. But that's, that's part of living in a fallen world. We're fallen people. He's saying these present sufferings are not even worth comparing with the glory, God's splendor and purity that will be revealed in us. Not may be revealed in us, but will be revealed in us in the future and it's certain. And it'll be Unveiled, the word revealed there is unveiled in us. So God's glory, that's really hidden today for most people. Most people in the world, we tell them, yeah, we've trusted Christ. We reconciled to God. We're bound for glory. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's hidden. But one day, who we are is going to be unveiled when we experience God's glory. And everyone is going to know, yes, God is real. Yes, the Bible is true. And yes, we really are saved by God's grace. Then we move on to verses 19 through 22. Here Paul personifies subhuman creation. This is everything from the mountains to the animals to vegetation. And he sort of personifies them saying that they were cursed along with you. The world has fallen as, as well as we human beings, and that's going to be reversed. Look at verse 19. It says, for creation waits. He's personifying creation as a, as a person. A creation waits an eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. In other words, when we are unveiled, when Christ returns, so will creation be unveiled. And then he explains why in verse 20, which is... A reference back to Genesis chapter 3. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by, by the will of the one who subjected it, who's God. So <laughs> create, subhuman creation today is frustrated. It's not operating off all cylinders. We have earthquakes, tsunamis. If you live on the East Coast, you have hurricanes. If you live in the Midwest, you have tornadoes. If you live in California, you have earthquakes. And all over the place you have droughts and floods and hail and all kinds of things that they have. The earth is not, I don't know whether global warming is true or not, maybe, maybe not. But, you know, there's, there's things happening. This, this earth is not functioning on all cylinders. It's beautiful. <laughs> Yesterday morning, uh, you know, we, 
We used to live in Cronulla Mall for the last 28 years or so. But, and I used to run along Crystal Cove. Yesterday, I got to run along Crystal Cove at low tide. Doesn't get any better. No, it does get better than that. But that's pretty cool. We're running along the ocean. And you see the cliffs on this side. It's absolutely beautiful. But, you know, lots of bad things happen in that ocean. Another interesting thing is when you read Revelation, there's got to be no more ocean. The ocean's going to be done away with. No more moon. No more uh, sun because the glory of the Lord will radiate the whole place. So creation is frustrated right now. This, the second law of dose, second law of thermodynamics, everything is running down now. Verse 20, though, at the end, it's, it's subjected in hope. Creation shares our hope that one day it's going to get better. One day there'll be no more earthquakes. One day there'll be no more floods. No, one day there'll be no more avalanches. Hope that the creation itself will be liberated, set free from the, its bondage to decay. Everything is running down. And will be brought into the freedom and glory of the children of the children of God. Um, and then verse twenty-two summarizes that we know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. So creation that was judged as a result of Adam's sin is one day going to be set free and function just like it did in the Garden of Eden with the Lord God and His glory. Now, verse 23, we come to the focus. That's when we will be transformed into this new life. Because, you know, (laughs) I read a book a little while ago called The Elephant in the Brain. And this book, The Elephant in the Brain, was actually written by two evolutionary biologists who are not Christians at all. But they had done a series of studies, and they said the elephant in the brain is every person has within them a huge streak of selfishness, self-aggrandizement, and deception. Now, that's obvious. That's the opposite of what you hear on most university campuses. Most university campuses are saying we're getting better and better, and one day we're going to just be perfect. But this guy, these two men did this terrific study And so that within everyone, and they go through all the different activities in life and say, even people who give away money philanthropically are really doing it so that people will know who they are. And they deceive themselves into thinking they're really doing it for good reasons. And of course, we Christians know that's the sin nature. We've been battling that from day one. We understand that. Inside of all of us is this selfishness, this deception This rebellion against God. At the same time as we are compassionate, kind, generous, and all those good things. But verse 23, something is going to come to change that. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. That's we Christians who've received the Spirit. But he he talks about the first fruits of the Spirit. Because the fullness of the Spirit is going to come when Christ comes back. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sunset. So (laughs) in Romans chapter 5 verse 2, he says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. In Romans 8, he says, we groan as we wait for the hope of the glory of God. 
Which is right? They're both right. On Sunday mornings, we can stand up and sing, When the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. Beulah land, sweet Beulah land. Swing down, sweet chariot. Come and for to carry me home. We can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But on Monday, we've run into this lousy boss. The car doesn't start. Your mother-in-law calls. Just all kinds of things happen like that. So sometimes we groan as we wait, and sometimes we rejoice as we wait. But one thing's for certain, it's coming. So we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. The word for wait eagerly is... It's sort of like a surprise. Have you ever been to a surprise birthday party for someone? Where you're all hiding in the back room and you're waiting for the person to come in the house. And they say, is he here yet? Is he here yet? Have they come yet? (laughs) That's the picture here. That we are waiting eagerly for Christ to come back and for us to experience glory. We wait eagerly. For our adoption of sonship, as, as for our adoption to sonship. We've been adopted, but the full blessings of the adoption will happen when Christ returns. And then he says it. Our adoption of sonship, the redemption of our bodies, the setting free of our bodies, the resurrection of our bodies. That is the final program. The final program is resurrection bodies. In the recreated and restored earth with God and with Christ for eternity. Can you do the can you do the Philippians verse, please? There's a great verse in Philippians here that, that, that says this, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring Everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. That's another little snapshot that tells us one day when Christ returns, our bodies will be transformed and they'll be like his glorious body. I'm not sure what that means. Maybe I'll be able to dunk a basketball for the first time in my life. I know there'll be no sickness. There'll be perfect bodies. It's going to happen when Christ returns. And there, one other verse for you here that's another snapshot. Revelation chapter 21. The apostle John says, another snapshot of the same event. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. You know how we sometimes sing... This world is not my home. Well, that's both true and it's not true. (laughs) In a sense, this world is not our home. But glory is going to be on this earth. Glory is going to be on this earth. God, when he comes, is going to reverse what happened with original sin. Creation is going to be restored to the state of the Garden of Eden. 
And we are going to have resurrected, transformed bodies. We'll no longer be selfish, greedy, immoral. Um, uh, we, we, we won't have malice, anger, slander, all those things going on. And we have perfect bodies. And then in verse uh, 24, Paul says, For in this hope we were saved. This is the... the confident expectation that we have. You know, we're only going to live on this life for a short period of time. Some of us may make it to 95. Many of us won't get there. But we're going to spend eternity, eternity in resurrection bodies on the restored heaven and earth as co-heirs with Jesus Christ, as full heirs with God. That's what we have to look forward to. Now, some people, I think you've seen the cartoon where the guy's sitting on a cloud, kind of staring out. And, no, sitting on a cloud, playing a violin, staring into space. And he's saying, man, I wish I'd brought some magazines with me. <laughs> That's that false view of heaven. But, the, but, but the, the, the new heaven and the new earth is going to be very similar to the wholesome things we had in this earth. It's going to be beautiful. We're going to have interesting things to do. As a lawyer, I'm going to draft some... Creative documents, negotiate some awesome deals. I'm sure there'll be cricket and rugby, and I'm sure there'll be golf. Got to be golf. Got to be golf. Uh, but no bad language on the golf courses. <laughs> it's, the new heaven, all that's wholesome down here on earth, we're going to have in the new heaven. It's going to be interesting. We're going to rule and reign with Christ. That we, we, the, the image of God created in us, now indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we can experience that. It's going to be terrific. And I'm not sure exactly what it is, but it's going to be great. And there's lots of snapshots of this. And that's what we're looking forward to one day. That's the hope. That's what we're looking forward to. Uh, Jesus Christ coming back. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. And then verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. That's what we're doing. That's our posture now. Lord Jesus, you can come anytime you want. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. I'm ready. We wait for it patiently. We groan sometimes and we rejoice sometimes. But we know one day it's coming. Um, Romans chapter 8 goes on to tell us what happens while we're waiting to give us some more assurance. And I'll just give a quick, quick summary of it. Romans 8 tells us that when we don't know what to pray for as we should, the Holy Spirit within us is praying for us with words we can't understand while we're waiting. While we're waiting, the Bible tells us that God is working all things together for good for those of us who love him to be conformed to his image. Romans 8 tells us that while we're waiting, we can be absolutely certain that those who he justified, he will glorify. There's no slippage. And finally, Romans 8 ends up, no, there's two more things. Romans says, Jesus Christ is interceding at the right hand of the Father for us while we're waiting. And finally, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Glory is certain. We just have to wait for it. And one day it'll be revealed. I finished with this story that I've probably told, told previously, but it's such a good story I have to tell it. Uh, when we had just moved to California, this is probably 1989, 19. Mm, 
1990, and I got an air letter card from my father. Remember the days when you <laughs> air letter cards that used to write? And my dad wrote it from South Africa and said, um, he said, I know I'm going to die pretty soon. But he says, I don't want you to waste yours and Tina's money on flying all the way to South Africa for my funeral. Because you're just going to see a dead body. I'm gone. He says, I want you instead to take Tina and your three boys, Paul, Mike, and Steve, into the backyard, look up to heaven, and give three cheers. He understood what the program was. I did go to the funeral, but just to to comfort my mother, not to see my dad. And that is the great hope that we have. And I hope that you're encouraged by that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that sinful human beings like us, through simple faith in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, can not only be saved, justified, and reconciled, but we have the confident expectation that one day, when Jesus Christ returns, we will have resurrection bodies and rule and reign with him on the new earth for eternity. And we're just grateful for that hope that one day we will be unveiled for who we truly are, your children created in your image. And we rejoice in that. In Christ's name, amen.